For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. This is such an interesting interview. I am really looking forward to hearing what you make of it. Recently, I was lucky enough to be invited to Java, Indonesia, to talk at a conference held by a company called Asmara, which is a buying house for the fashion industry. And they've got offices all through Asia, as well as they've got one in Spain, I think. But they connect brands to a network of suppliers and factories. And I really had not understood how all this worked until then. I mean... I just found it absolutely fascinating to meet so many suppliers and different people from manufacturing and listen to their perspectives and how they're trying to implement sustainability initiatives. Because if you think about it, and I reckon I'm guilty of this as well, we we always hear from the brands. We, I know we don't feature a lot of brands on this podcast because I'm not that interested in that side. But, you know, you go to a conference, perhaps in Europe, and it's brand, brand, brand on the stage. Or you read, I don't know, mainstream sustainability coverage in the the press, in magazines. And it's all about what brand is doing what amazing sustainability thing and what their goals are. But how often do we talk to the people who actually have to make it happen? Because this is the factories. This is the suppliers. I mean, in the in good cases, the brand is helping them, right? But essentially, they're the ones that need to get the accreditations, They've got to update their machinery and systems. They're the ones who've got to make the switch to renewable energy. You'll be familiar with this phrase, oh, we don't own our factories. We know this, right? It's commonly known. So brands don't directly or very rarely directly control and own their factories in a vertical operation, right? They work with suppliers and manufacturers. So this, I think, is something we need to hear more about Also contributing to this conference was this week's guest. His name is Edward Hertzman, and he's the founder of Sourcing Journal, which if you're like a Vogue reader, maybe you've never heard of it. But essentially, it is the fashion industry's trade paper focused on supply chains. Now, Eddie was one of those electric stage presences. He was just brilliant. And I was sitting watching him. I was like, I've got to get this guy. I've got to go and introduce myself to him and make him come on the podcast. But he was just brilliant. He's a really very straight talking forthright New Yorker and he said so many things that I think remain unsaid often so he talked about the enduring power imbalance between brands and suppliers he talked about the bad behavior over COVID and how it has in some corners persisted he talked about how brands are still pushing down prices and he also talked about the current inventory crisis where apparently big brands are sitting on crazy amounts of stock post-COVID and you'll hear him explain why like they over-ordered and were over-ambitious in their projections and why we can expect really deep discounting for the next sales season which is a little bit scary. Anyway afterwards I ran up to him and was like please do this interview and he said yes and I'm so glad because I learned a truckload from Eddie about how the fashion industry works from a sourcing perspective and I love this episode. I feel like It revealed, and so did being at this conference, quite a lot of ignorance on my part uh, in terms of how things work behind the scenes. And I was like, wow, if I am so embedded in this work and I don't know this stuff, I'm sure that some of you are in the same boat. So I feel like this is a learning curve and 
it should be required listening for anyone working for a brand that produces offshore that is not embedded in the kind of sourcing side of things. I'd like them to, I hope that there are some uni teachers listening to this who will encourage those studying design to listen and learn about what it actually takes to make their stuff behind the scenes. Tell us what you think. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter as usual at Mrs. Press. You can find Eddie, who calls himself the hype man of sourcing on Instagram. He's at Edward Hertzman, H-E-R-T-Z-M-A-N. But before we get into it, I thought I might just tell you a little bit about Fibre Trace because purely coincidence, you'll hear Eddie mention them towards the end of this conversation and I've been working with them on a new tool that they're launching called Mapped, which is very relevant to this week's sourcing theme. So Fibertrace began in Australia. It's a technology that allows traceability of raw materials and they started with cotton and wool, right? But it basically bonds a pigment marker to the raw fibre. So you can't see it, not with your eyes, but you can scan it you can then see where exactly where that fibre has travelled. So it's a game changer for traceability. Now, Mapped is this new cloud-based, blockchain-backed digital tool that any brand can use to start mapping their global textile supply chain from the fibre right through to retail. And it's free to access. So have a look. It's fibertrace.io forward slash technology, and we'll stick a link in the show notes too. I think it's a really good idea. Anyway, now... Let's get into sourcing <laughs> and meet Eddie Hertzman. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis, Edward Hertzman. Thank you for agreeing to do this on the fly. I appreciate it. Do you want to begin by, tell us where we are. Where are we? We are sitting in a little cafe in Indonesia right now. We're in an Italian restaurant before it opens, an Italian theme restaurant. It's called, actually it's called pizza, but that's fine. I'm not sure what they serve, but it's uh, <laughs> it, it's great to be here. Um, it's it's great to be back in in South Asia. I'm excited. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to be visiting some factories, which I haven't done in, in the past couple of years. We are at a an industry day. They're calling it a sort of conference for Asmara. We're at a vendor day for Asmara Sourcing Agency. And it's been really interesting, actually, because they've had three themes that were explored on the stage that their clients and their customers are interested in. One was sustainability, one was the metaverse, and one was conditions right now, which are obviously challenging post-pandemic. So before we get into that, Edward, you've got some illustrious titles there, Executive Vice President of Fairchild Media, Founder and President of Sourcing Journal. Fairchild owns WWD, which I'm sure you're all aware of. But you weren't a media guy to start with, Edward. Eddie, Edward, what's your e- preference? E- either is fine. No, um, what do you prefer? Uh, let's let's do Eddie for the for the show. Um, yeah, this sourcing journal was, and not everyone believes this was actually an accident. It was created simply out of frustration. I remember the exact day I came up with the idea. It was 2009. We were in the midst of a cotton crisis. I was sitting in Dhaka trying to place 100,000 units for a very well-known brand. And I um, said to the sourcing executive that if we don't place it today, tomorrow there'll be more money, and the next day there'll be more money. What's a cotton crisis? In 2009, very very similar to what we experienced last year, the, the price of cotton just kept going up, 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 up. You couldn't hold the price for 24 hours. So if you quoted someone 210 for a t-shirt, it was 215 the next day, and 220 the next day, and 230, and by the time they came to... Confirm the order, I'd say, well, Claire, I, it's no longer 210, it's 245. Wow. And so this gentleman said to me, I didn't know what I was doing. He's been doing this more years than I've been alive. So I just, 
it really rubbed me the wrong way. And I said, how come they don't know what's going on? So I literally go to my room. At that point, I think it was uh, $49 a night. Amenities, hot and cold water with the plug-in Wi-Fi. Bought the domain sourcing journal and started aggregating links. And I was off. But yeah, for the first 15 years of my career, I was a sourcing agent doing actually the very same thing that Asmara does. You know, working for a competitor, actually. Mm. Um, I was the intermediary between brands and retailers and factories. I was out there finding them their factories, finding them the raw materials, finding them the trims, and delivering them their products. I want to talk a bit more about how all that works, but I'm just going to, at this point, shout out to Jasmine Malik-Chua, who is one of my favorite sustainability journalists, sustainable fashion writers, experts. I She's got a really deep understanding on this topic. I've always followed her. So if listeners are not a cross-sourcing journal, you do have to have a subscription. But check it out because I feel like Jasmine is a voice, a voice that we need to follow. Yeah, she is fantastic. And she is so well... Hey, Jasmine. <laughs> she is so well respected by the industry. Now, she, she is... She's tough. She definitely... Um, <laughs> There are people that love her, and there are people that definitely uh, get upset because she does she does not hold back, and she reports the facts. And the facts are not always pleasant, but they need to be reported on. Okay, so to the non-industry insider, and that is most of our listeners, what don't we know about sourcing? I mean, I was saying to you before, it sort of does what it says on the tin when you say buying and sourcing. We know what those words mean. But I don't think that we all know how the system operates in fashion. So could I task you? I did warn you I was going to do this, but not with much time to prep. Give us like a kind of cliff's notes on how the world of fashion sourcing, buying agents and suppliers operates. Sure. So I think the one thing most people don't realize is that brands and retailers, I want to say more than 90% of them, do not own their factories. The same way we don't own DHL, we don't own the shipping lines, we don't own the factories we manufacture in. So a lot of times we see headlines where retailers or brands get called out, but they are not operating in their own facilities. What basically happens, um, the cliff note version, is brands or retailers design products. Obviously we all know designers, they create these garments, and then they have to go overseas to manufacture them. They either go directly to the factories or which, they were which just I thought that's what most of them did but it's not well some of them do some of them work with intermediaries they could be called trading companies uh, they could be called virtual manufacturers they could be called agencies buying houses there's a, a lot of different words um, if you're not familiar Lian Fung is probably the largest sourcing company in the world um Asmara's one, Synergies Worldwide, William Connor. Um, there's there's quite a bit of them. And then it's it's like a pyramid, right? There's probably 10 that occupy probably 80%. And there's a lot of what I like to call Yahoo.coms, you know, single, single operators with a suitcase that try to, you know, undercut someone and take a few orders. But essentially, um, they are the ones that act as an inter- intermediary for these brands and retailers. And you were saying earlier that your experience in a, as an agent or in a buying house was that you are trying to do the best deal for your client, your client being. So when I was doing it, you know, price was the number one priority. I mean, I was pushing you to say, is the client the supplier oh, or so, is the client the so brand the client, or is the client both? Well, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot. The client is the retailer or the brand. But 
not every see now we're getting into the technical nuances of this some trading companies um, and I'm not going to call out who represent both sides of the of the coin so they're taking money from the, the, the retailer and the brand and they're also taking money from the factory or they're quoting a price and they're arbitrage, arbitraging the difference the biggest difference today is that there is much more transparency into costing and so the buyers know that that 40-40, fabric is $1.72 a yard. They know that a men's dress shirt is 1.9 yards of fabric. When you have an open costing, it's very hard to deceive the brands today because they actually know all the input costs. Ten years ago, wasn't always the case. But I will say with the, the, the 600,000 plus Shopify stores and all these micro brands and DTC brands, this new generation is not very savvy. Their skill set is really consumer acquisition and marketing and creating cool products, which is very difficult to do. But they might not have the buying know-how to know that that T-shirt really doesn't cost three eighty. It's really two seventy-five. I mean, I think that I'm sure we're going to get feedback from listeners on doing this this interview. And thank you, Eddie, for doing it because I feel like. We do so many stories about, we always talk about, we want to know how things are made. I do. We want to know about their environmental impacts. Are they ethical? Are they sustainable? We also want to talk about the wonderful creativity of design. But loads of listeners who either run little businesses or want to, I do get questions. How do we find factories? Actually, it's really difficult to find the right supplier partners. Intermediaries also create healthy competition in the supply chain. You know what a lot of brands and retailers have is their own local offices, their own local office in Dhaka, their own local office in Delhi or Mumbai. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're getting the best product development or they're getting competitive pricing. So they sometimes use intermediaries to supplement. Also, when you don't have boots on the ground, so if I want to move into a new market, that's how I really got my start. 2008, when the whole world went upside down, people needed to find cost savings. I was working for an organization that was very heavily predominant and successful in Pakistan and Bangladesh. When I started knocking on doors, people were willing to talk to me. Now those don't seem like new ideas, but then everyone was in China, 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 China. So if I could save someone 20 or 30% at a time when the markets were collapsing, I was able to meet a lot of people. One of the phrases that I don't know where I borrowed this from, it's not mine, is chasing the cheapest needle. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that brands run around the world looking for the cheapest option and when producing countries lift conditions and wages rise, they go somewhere else and look for the next cheapest. What's your, what can you tell us about that? Is that how it's all operating? I mean, the cynic in me says yes. I would say that still is largely the methodology at most companies. Um, I think as long as that we're dictated and and judged by Wall Street quarterly, you know, success, um, you know, VCs pressuring this never-ending growth, trying to raise the next round, um, people are very short-sighted, so they do look at costs. And I think the conversation is starting to evolve. Uh, Sustainability is becoming very important having partners that are a little bit more agile, the ability to get product to the store quicker, so maybe looking at nearshoring options. So I don't want to say that it's completely transactional, Mm -hmm. but we would be mistaken to say that people are still jumping around when when there are pricing opportunities out there. And in a market like this, 
where demand is softening and there's capacities at the factory level, the brands and retailers will aggressively take advantage of that. On stage today, you mentioned, you used the term power shift, and you said that that's what needs to happen if we're going to move these relationships from the purely transactional to true partnerships. What would you say about that? It's always bothered me, and I don't want to take a side of the factory or the retailer, um, especially as a media outlet, I believe you have to report the news, good, bad, or indifferent. And so this is not taking sides. But I think it's hypocritical, and I think it's comical almost when we say that we are partners or there is a partnership between the factories and the retailers. It is a very one-sided relationship. The power is largely held by the brands. They're the ones placing the orders. They're the ones that have really all the power, and they will cancel, and they will move to other people, and they will quote-unquote, threaten that re- that relationship. And when cotton prices come down, they want the price to come down. Even though the spot rate's down, it could take 30, 60, 90 days before that new price of cotton enters the factory. When the price of cotton goes up, you think they're willing to give an upcharge? No. Market conditions soften. Hold the goods. Well, What do you mean? Okay, what do you mean for those who don't know what that means? Hold the goods means I give you projections. Claire, make 100000 Widgets this month, make 100,000 widgets next month, make 100,000 widgets next month. Things start slowing. Oh, that shipment, hold the January shipment. But that factory already went out with their money and their credit. And they had to go 60 or 90 days before that and get the raw materials, get the yarn, get all those components. So they're offering credit without even offering credit. I mean, when we talk about suppliers and manufacturers taking all the risk, this is what we mean, that they have had to invest in the fabrics. They've had to pay their workers. They've had to make this all in advance of the brand taking delivery, if they accept taking delivery. And then payment could be, what, how many days? That's really more of a case-by-case basis. There are some people that have, you know, they'll have to pay up front. You know, if you're a new brand or retailer establishing a relationship, it is very customary to have a down payment or have payment before the goods ship. Some people that establish credibility and, and credit with their factories could have net 30, so could have it when it hits the right, dock. Right, so it's case by case. It's case by case, but I think it's important that the audience understands, and, and this is a general comment that I'm making, that the factory inherently is is taking a risk because they have to procure the fabric. They have to keep those lines for that order. So even if they get paid when the, when the goods ship, that could still be 90 days from the start of that process. So there is inherent credit that they're offering their retail partners, even without a formal credit agreement. Mm. And I think the point being, as we saw through the pandemic, that's all fine if that's how you've been working for a long time and you know when the money is projected to come in. It's not fine if then the order is cancelled. You know, you heard me say this earlier. I don't want to condone what happened during the pandemic, but let's just say that was a one-time instance where everyone had the last man in the raft mentality and said, all our stores are shut around the world. Every single one of our consumers is now working at home. We can't get anyone into, it was a complete black swan event. What are you going to do? You have no ability to forecast the future. You did what you had to do. You canceled the orders. So let's put that aside horrible and the factories were put in very very terrible positions now not everyone did that yeah some people said 
I'll pay you for the fabric. I'll pay for part of this. Hold. The, the, the best relationships were, or the best partnerships were when people figured out a path through this. What was very painful for a lot of the factories is when you work with someone for decades and you get a mass email that says, consider all the following canceled, or please hold everything to, that's not a very personal way of handling a very difficult and potentially catastrophic event. And from your work and the work of your reporters and what you were hearing in the industry, that happened? Oh, it, it certainly happened. I mean, I have the email emails that were sent out. And again, that's very public. I mean, you could go, and this is not a sourcing journal or trade-specific headline. This was done across multiple industries. And like I said, it was survival of the fittest. What bothers me, though, is after such a record year in 2021, one where we had supply issues, people chasing for product, begging their factories to take on more capacity, expand the lines, hire more people, because retailers thought they really reinvented themselves or came up with some great new strategy. The, the reality is there was limited supply. You had consumers that had some extra cash in their pocket, and I'm speaking from the American mindset, right? So stimulus or whatever, or they just saved money because they haven't been shopping. You're at home, you're bored, you're shopped. Yeah. This happened everywhere or so, everywhere in rich countries. So you, everyone ran out and bought merchandise at full price. They were able to raise the ticket price, which is unheard of because we're in a deflationary, you know, clothing is largely deflationary. It's always 40% off, 30% off. That's how you move merchandise. So 2021, what I keep calling it and what I caution people throughout the years, it was fool's gold. But what do people do? They don't think like that. They think the good days are never going to end. And <laughs> the first six months of this year, from January to June, we imported in America 24% more units of clothing than we did in 21, which is already after like a 20% increase. And when you account for inflation, the dollar-wise retailers took in 40% more merchandise. Now, that would have been fine if the demand would have continued, but we all know that's not how the story went. Are people simply greedy or did they fail to look carefully at their projections? To me, it seems pretty obvious that that wouldn't just keep on growing. Well, to me, and I'm not an economist. Yeah, I, well, I use that in exact terms. I was speaking at multiple conferences, and I said I'm not an economist, although my degree. You from did en study. <laughs> yeah, I, I did study. I, I did study that. <laughs> yes, but um, I don't want to mislead anyone. I'm not a. That's not what I go around predicting is markets, but it was very obvious to me what was happening. But like I said, people, when the market keeps going up, keep powering through. That growth is never going to end. The high is never as high and the low is never as low. <laughs> but there has to be some common sense applied to this. And this is not a one retailer or one category problem. This was a collective, as an industry, we collectively took this in. Now, there's, that doesn't mean there wasn't a retailer here or there that saw this coming. It was rationalized its, its, its supply. But what I'm saying is as long as Wall Street demands us and rewards us for this top-line growth, and raising money and raising money is the KPI that so many entrepreneurs are after, this is going to be a problem. We're going to have boom to bust to boom to bust cycles. The practical problem, apart from the fiscal one, let's say, is that now brands are sitting on loads of inventory. We've just had Black Friday. And it's funny because I was 
trying to spread the message that there is a backlash against gratuitous overconsumption, buying stuff you don't need, rushing for the bargains. But obviously brands are hoping to move some of this stock they're sitting on through the Black Friday frenzy. What they're facing is way too much product. And that's the story we're always telling on this podcast. Overconsumption, overproduction. It ends up being burnt and trashed. So I want to respond to that question two different ways. First, first off, um, Black Friday was fine. It it, it did not. Um, In terms of the numbers of what, yeah, it, what it's it fine. It, it it did okay. I, I think Cyber Monday did did better, um, but in terms of moving the excess inventory. I just think it's funny, though, because, Eddie, you know that my idea of it doing it being fine is that if it goes down and nobody buys all these bargain things. See, I think, you, okay, you got to my <laughs> second point of the question. Sorry, go ahead. Claire, you have to remember, and to the people picketing outside the retailers and, and, and making these com- comments about stop buying, we don't need any more. I, I just will say that I shared a picture of protests outside the British e-tailer Boohoo on Black Friday. There were also global protests held by Amazon warehouse workers. It was a kind of flashpoint, but anyway, go on. I think we have to remember that we are in the fashion business and businesses are exist to make money. Now, I think to do good, companies have to do good before we could give our money away or invest in sustainability or invest in charitable initiatives all the things that i know your audience wants to talk about businesses have to be financially sound and so there is nothing in my opinion wrong with making a profit i think in these isolated cases whether or not people are exploiting labor or people are you know, burning clothing or they're not running res- responsible organizations, that's a separate point. But I think the idea when people start placing ads saying, don't buy anything or we're going to sell this jacket for a million dollars or a million euros as an anti-Black Friday statement, it's kind of ironic because those very companies, um, if they don't sell anything, will cease to exist. What I mean when Black Friday is fine is that this holiday season is projected to do anywhere from 4 to 6% growth year over year. Now, that's whether it's the NRF or the S&P. I'm the Grinch, okay? So I'm the guy that kind of <laughs> ruins Christmas before it happens because I say I don't really believe those numbers. Those are top-line sales numbers. And in order to do that, I think it's going to come at a massive expense to the bottom line. So when I'm looking at a J. Crew ad a week before Black Friday and it's 50% off or a gap 40 with 20 when I'm seeing retailers essentially giving the stuff away before Black Friday and then Black Friday just does okay, what does that mean for the rest of the holiday season? What does that mean for end of December? What does that mean for January? It's going to be extremely promotional. Margins will be eroded. People will make very little money, if any. It, That's it, the reality. So it says that retailers are concerned that they've got too much inventory and they're not moving it quickly enough. They're discounting before the sales season is even upon us. Well, we saw Amazon do a second Prime Day. We saw retailers like Target move up promotion to early October. So it's not Black Friday. It's Black Quarter. Okay, the idea that I'm not discounting Black Friday as an important day. It's a shopping day. When survey two and three customers go out, there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of enthusiasm around it. It brings a lot of people to the store. It brings a lot of people online. I think it was once used as a barometer of success. It's now just part of the story. You have a much longer sales cycle. 
and we have to look at the full selling season, not one day or one weekend or one week to determine if this is a successful holiday. When you speak with brands in particular and retailers as opposed to manufacturers, what do they think about this extension of the sale, constant extension of the sale period? I mean, I'm thinking about Andrew Keith now, the CEO of Selfridges, and at that time, president of Lane Crawford, when they started the forum, they called it, during the pandemic, where they were like, we need to take this chance to have a reset. And really central to their idea of the reset was to push back on this constant sale period extension. So they're like, we've got to stop it. We're discounting too early. We're training the customer to wait for the sales. And I know that especially for independent brands, they feel it a lot. If you wholesale to a department store and you've got your own little online store and then you see that your wholesale partner is putting your stuff on sale just days after they've got it. It's really tough, right? So what are you hearing from brands and retailers about how we've, what's happened to us with sales? We had a small window of opportunity in 21 to really change the game. For that six month or year, we were actually able to raise prices, sell at full price. Margins were much richer that's lost. We lost that opportunity because all we did is we went exactly back to the bad behavior that got us into this place. We are now back to pre-pandemic discounting. We're back to too much inventory. And the only way to move it is to heavily, heavily discount it. The consumer is smart and they're going to wait. They're going to price shop. It's not like in 21 when you walked into the store, there was one pair left in your size, you bought it. Or there was one pair of something in the other color, you wanted to have it, you bought it. No. So I appreciate everyone talking a big game in 21 as if they figured out this retail conundrum. All they did is I think they got lucky on one side of the coin and now they're right back to what got them into this dangerous place. Why don't we change? It's a mentality shift. And I don't believe the industry, um, we are A, a very reactive industry. We're not proactive. Right. We're not a very innovative industry. Um, and the incentives, especially for senior management, are not aligned with that more rational way of thinking, which is why I think you see more upstarts coming into the industry, taking market share. And I think that many of the brands and retailers that are here today won't be here five, ten years from now. We saw a lot of bankruptcies in COVID. We saw a lot of bankruptcies before COVID. And I think that like in every industry, um, innovation comes from the outside. The music industry, I like to use this as an example. The music industry was t- turned upside down. We all listen to music. It's not like music went away. But it wasn't Tower Records or it wasn't Virgin. or These weren't the guy or the Sony Walkman. They weren't the ones that came up with the MP3. Apple did. They weren't the ones that came up with Spotify or Pandora or Live Nation who recreated the artist touring you know 360 deal so the fashion industry we're not going to be naked you know and if you believe that's the case then we have bigger problems but as long as we're going to continue to wear clothes people will make them i just think that some of the old school mentality and the incentives are not changing Mm. let's talk about sustainability we obviously need to see change when it comes to that and there's a lot of talk about change accelerating which I do believe it is you shared a stat on stage that you had from a report that sourcing journal worked on with 
Alex Partners. So we do an annual benchmarking every year. It is an opportunity for us to survey the industry. So these stats are not from us. This is from the executives running major brands and retailers. And one of the alarming stats was 80% of brands are making sustainable initiatives or investing in sustainable initiatives or making sustainable claims, which is fantastic, Claire. That's definitely a trend in the right direction. It should be 100%, but 80 is a very strong number. Here's the, oh shit, stat. Less than 20% of them are actually tracing or tracking these commitments, which means they have no ability to actually know if they're hitting their goals. Um, They have no ability to comply with new regulation, which I want to get to in a second. This is essentially Eddie on January 1st saying, Claire, I'm going to lose 10 pounds next year. And on December 31st, I say, oh, I don't know if I lost anything. Or maybe I lost three pounds. What happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. Because this is not a regulated industry. But this is about to change, and it's going to change fast. Mm -hmm. So there's two things. The conversation of is sustainability important? We have to worry about the environment. We should care about our... All that is great, and I'm not discounting that. But there's only two ways, in my opinion, to get people to change. And maybe I sound like the capitalistic New Yorker when I say this. Yeah, because I told you that before we started recording. It's okay. You're not the first one. (laughs) Is either you have to incentivize people. Monetary incentive. Or you have to punish them for doing something wrong. We live in a world where you got to find people for not wearing seatbelts, right? So I don't know if there's enough incentive for people to become more sustainable. You could argue that the, the next generation wants more sustainable brands. And that in itself is incentive that if you're not meeting the customer or giving them what they want, they won't be your client for long. But more importantly is the regulation. We have the Green Deal. We have plenty of regulation in place in Europe. We have the New York Fashion Act, which could potentially pass. We saw the passage of the Uyghur Force Protection Act, which is all around the um, forced labor issues in, in China, around the cotton. But it's not just China. It's, it's you have to be able to trace the origins of your raw materials and also prove that you don't have forced labor in your factories. And if less than 20% of the industry is tracing this, how can they comply to these regulations? The short answer is they cannot, which means... They're going to have huge issues when this regulation passes. Mm -hmm. They won't be able to comply. Their businesses will be in jeopardy. And the other thing is we have a very vocal consumer today. We have people that are very quick to cancel brands. We have people that are very quick to go on social media and call out these claims. And if the consumer can tell that a brand is making a claim that they can't back up, you're going to have a headline you don't want to defend. We're going to run this in January, but we're recording it at the very early December. Let's talk about Balenciaga. Just interesting. I saw this morning a guy on, I think this was, I think it was Renoon, actually, the post, and they'd collated a sort of carousel of what's going on with Balenciaga. And one was a, one was like a TikTok of some guy who got his trainers, and he went outside in the garden, and he went, this is what I think about pedophiles. And then he put the trainers into a fire pit and set them on fire. For listeners who don't know about this, essentially, we'll share a link. We're not going to go into the ins and outs of it, but there were two shoots that had happened by different photographers, different creative teams that seemed to condone child pornography or exploitation. But it's interesting how quick consumers and perhaps those who don't aren't consumers, who've never even heard of Balenciaga, were quick to accuse them and cancel them. That's interesting. We're at a point where it's like trial by social media. 
Yeah, you are guilty essentially before even on trial. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't want to comment too much on Balenciaga. I don't know how you get to the point where an ad like that runs. You know, two of them, two of them in quick succession. I, 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 it's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, it, we're talking about a lot of things today, which which defy logic, and this is another one of those examples where. Is it the agency? Is it the executives? Whatever it is, that had to be seen by multiple people before it went live. But that's not the point. I think the point that you're trying to make is one faux pas quickly leads a whole generation to go on social media. And those social media outlets have bigger reach and distribution than some of the major newspapers and publications. And they could really cause a lot of pain for a brand overnight. So that example is obviously very specific and quite weird, let's face it. But I think... What I'm guessing at is that we, we're already seeing it where people are quick to jump on brands that are perceived to be greenwashing. Someone was using a phrase I hadn't heard before, green hushing the other day, saying that's basically brands saying we don't dare talk in case we're accused of. But in this environment where people are quick to cancel on social media, it makes it dangerous. It's risky for brands, isn't it? It's very risky. I also think, and <clears throat> I don't want to downplay any of the mistakes that brands and retailers do we also have a very fickle customer they forget very quickly so you know six months from now i would love to reconnect with you claire and see if balenciaga is still i was gonna say january probably no one cares they're all like amazing right so i I think we have we have to remember that um that doesn't give people a pass and i think that what's ever published on the internet lives forever and so this is just an example of what we're saying that even if it's not regulation, your own stupidity could be very dangerous to yourself. And you don't want to spend your, you have enough obstacles. We spent a whole morning, Claire, talking about all the challenges brands and retailers have. Geopolitical issues, inflation um, at, the, at the factory level. We have, you know, logistics issues. We have, now we have to think about how we're gonna run our brands in the metaverse. We have to think about how we're going to set up distribution, uh, uh, points of distribution all over this country. How we're going to sell cross-border. We have currencies. We have so many issues. We have, you know, extra tariffs. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Why do we need to add our own? Why do we have to create more problems? (laughs) Human nature. So I would just encourage brands and retailers to take sustainability very seriously because whether or not you think it's important, it doesn't. I don't really care what you think. What I'm telling you with a fact is regulation is here and if it's not here it's coming and if you don't think it's here just look across to europe because it's there and if you're a global brand which almost everyone is by default because you're on the internet you have to comply so what are you doing about that is it expensive well it's not free so people say oh there's no cost yes there is a cost the vp of sustainability costs money the vp of traceability costs money if you want to work with organizations like Oratain or Apply DNA or FiberTrace to trace your you know, raw materials, that costs money. If you want to work in grade A factories, factories that have invested in water treatment facilities, laser machines, so you're not doing some of that old handmade uh, tactics you know, to get some of the distressing. And sandblasting or, yes, and all exactly, the rest of it. Yes, exactly. It's illegal now. The point is these factories are investing a ton of money, and they're doing that without a guarantee of an order. That's another way that the, this, this factory brand relationship is slightly skewed is that the brand makes all the investment and hopes to get the order. But there's only so many of those factories out there that are really grade A and the good brands want to work there. And so you have to work 
with those factories. You have to do all these things, and they cost money. But if the this, the other end it was is long term, long term. It, it, it could be short term. No, but it, I mean, it's a long term perspective. Like that's moving away from that reactive thing. A hundred percent. But it could be very short term if customs stops your shipment <laughs> and you get a WRO, and all of a sudden you have to claim that this cotton didn't come from the force region in China, and you can't do that. Where would you like to see this headed? It bothers me the hypocrisy in our industry. All the ESG reports, all the CSR reports, making all these great claims, which is good. I'm not, dis- I'm not discrediting that. It's good that we're doing that. We're, we're going, sustainability is like a ladder, right? You gotta keep going step by step. You just don't get to the top. And it's really a never ending journey because how are you truly sustainable? What I get bothered by, and this is something that I don't think gets enough press, is that in CSR and ESG, there's a word, there's a letter S, that's social. So if we go back to one of your earlier questions about these order cancellations or whatnot, do you think a factory worker sitting in Bangladesh making $100 a month, $200 a month, a month, cares that the world is getting a half a degree warmer a year? Do you actually think that's what they think about? Do you think they think about, oh, you know, I really wish there was solar energy on the roof? They want to feed their family. And so when you cancel orders or you do things that put their basic necessities at risk I don't really care that you have a sustainable collection in your window on 5th Avenue because that could make it represent 5% of your collection that's your marketing tactic I don't care that you change the billboard to reflect whatever social injustice is going on because that's just really a reaction to what's ever going on in society it's how you treat people on a day to day that matters there's some brands that build sustainability into their ethos now I don't expect everyone to be a Patagonian that's an extreme But I think we have to be true to what we're trying to say. And so I don't like when I see public companies saying, oh, we're managing our inventory really well. Yet I know the truth. The truth is they've canceled hundreds of millions of dollars at the factory level. And they've canceled hundreds of millions of dollars with their wholesale partners, meaning they had a layoff or they they have to sit on inventory or they have to borrow money against us. They're not really – they didn't really – forecast inventory properly they put the pain on somebody else and I don't know Mm -hmm. any other industry where you could do that now I'm not going to call out the retailers I could and you could just read the paper to figure out who's doing this I just think that's not very just it's not very equitable and I don't want to see your flashy ESG reports because you're not really operating in the most ethical way possible um, that doesn't, again, I don't want to discredit the advancements that we're making. I'd love to know um, what led you here. I know that you studied economics at university. What kind of kid were you and what did you dream of when you grew up? I grew up in, in New York, so I've been a New Yorker my whole life. Is What type of kid was I? Um, I was uh, your quintessential nerd. I think I graduated with like 115 GPA or whatever, I would beg my father to go buy every region's book for the past 10 years because that was a New York State test we all had to take. I figured out that they could only ask the questions so many times, like in different ways, so that if I studied and read every book for the past decade, I'd stumble upon the question. I, My memory is pretty good, so I did extremely well academically. I thought at that time that was my only real way to be successful, I guess. I don't know. I'm in a lot of therapy, so I'm working through it. I studied economics. All my friends wanted to pursue a career at Wall Street. I had zero 
zero negative interest in that. And also, I didn't think I would really do as well as them. I started business after business after business. I raised, I remember, remember $100,000 before I turned 21 to lose all of it. What I kinds kept, of businesses? Well, we, we don't have enough time to get in there. Just but, give me one example. Well, there was a, another media idea I had. I wanted to be... Um, <laughs> There was Lucky Magazine for, for women, which was very popular, the high, medium, low. I grew up loving GQ, and I'm like, but I can't afford all this $50,000 watches and $1,000 shoes. So I'm like, how do I get that look for less? So I thought I could do that, and um, that wasn't really very easy to get into the, the media industry when you're in college, and uh, there was no such thing as WordPress, and I'm spending $75,000 to build a custom CMS. Let's just say I lost all the money. but. It was very valuable experience because when the opportunity came to start Sourcing Journal, I knew how to build everything and do everything. So that was a um, great learning experience. I but I love that though. Sorry to interrupt you, but I love that because failure and all the early things you do is what equips you to do the things later. We can all relate to that, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was it was a horrible feeling, and uh, you know, interestingly enough, I actually went back to the investor that gave me the hundred grand, and I said, I have this idea. Well, actually, the story gets even crazier if you really want to know how it all went down was um, I was in college and I wanted to start a t-shirt line. And my father's like, you're an idiot. And so he goes, why don't you learn the business? So I went for this, to, work, to get an internship at this very large wholesaler. And the wholesaler essentially, these guys took licenses um, and did a lot of children's wear. So I was responsible for the launch of one of their own labels and I instantly got hooked. I mean, I was traveling around the country. I was going to Vegas for major trade shows. I mean, this time, Urban was on fire. I mean, Puff Daddy coming down in a million-dollar booth in Vegas. And we were, it was just wild. And I was just... How old were you? I was 20. Mm -hmm. um, I remember begging my dad. I wanted to graduate early, so I wanted to take summer classes. Can you please, please help me, you know, get these credits through the summer so I could graduate a semester early or half a year early so that I could... I had a job before I even graduated I just loved it um, but essentially what I realized very quickly while working there is that brands come and go and so do the salespeople that work for them you have a good brand it's it's like anything else it's a life cycle and I didn't want to be, be Willie Loman for those that don't know that's death, the, of, a this death, death, death of a salesman and I saw that play when Philip Seymour, Seymour Hoffman was alive oh, wow. and, and Andrew Garfield was yeah, in it right. it was but I, I never wanted to be a Willie Loman. And so I remember meeting a gentleman who was responsible for all the sourcing. Um, I used to call him the Pakistani James Bond. This guy would walk through the office with the etro scarves and he was very quiet and he was the one that would do it all. And interestingly enough, um, we were both in Vegas for a trade show and it was really my first interaction with him. And I told him about this magazine idea. So at the time, I was still in college, 20. He invested in me. Well, I lost the money. I went back to him and said, I want to get you your money back. But you have to hire me. You have to hire me. Teach me everything you know because I'll make it back as your employee. Most people are like, this guy wants to kill you. Why is he going to hire you? And he thought, like, what guy wants to go after getting an economics degree at NYU and go spend his time in Karachi and Dhaka? I said, I want to do it. So he goes, okay, I'll, I'll send you to Bangladesh. And if you really want to do it, when you come back, we could talk. I should say that I got a terrible bacterial infection and probably lost 20 pounds. It was on two rounds of antibiotics. But I never really told him that because I, I wanted him to think I was tough. 
came back. I said, I still want to do it. <laughs> and he sends me to Karachi. I want to do it. And I thought that I was in a, a great opportunity because this was a business that I thought, it, you know, now we talk about sourcing and sustainability. It's mainstream media. But I'm like, this is, I don't know people in this. It was largely people from South Asia that would come to the States with the suitcases. I didn't know a lot of all my friends that were going into sourcing. I didn't know a lot of Americans that were studying this. I'm like, wow, if I could take my love of, of apparel and, and, and business and combine it and international business, this is, I got something here. And I wanted to go and I wanted to represent this company. I ended up becoming their head of business development for all of North America. I would spend months throughout the year in South Asia. So I learned pricing. I was could speak all, Urdu almost at one point. I really learned the business. And then in 2009, to come full circle, when the cotton crisis happened, that was my, there needs to be an industry publication. So I started it. And people said, you can't compete against WWD or whatever. I said, well, they'll buy me one day, which ironically, the parent company did. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, if I didn't start the first publication, I never would have had the know-how to start that. If I didn't get that internship and lose the money, I never would have met that gentleman. So it's a crazy story. I'm still very close to them. I would say I miss most about running a media business. I miss being in the factories. I miss the product. I'm lucky that I'm invited to conferences like this and tomorrow I'll go visit factories. Um, but I still do uh, consult for quite a bit of, of retailers and brands. Um, those that have an open mind and want to learn, um, call mm -hmm. me and uh, they know I'm candid and not always, I don't mix my words, but um, it's, it's been a fun ride. I'm, I'm a pretty young guy, so I think, you know, I just want to continue to mm -hmm. be a voice for, for mm -hmm. the industry and um, through platforms like Sourcing Journal and, and speaking and podcasts like yours, I think get out and try to um, encourage people to be innovative and change how they operate. A fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Claire, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you.